News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. In B.C., the focus on recovery continues and more help will arrive from the Canadian forces this week. Meanwhile, in Ottawa, the 44th Parliament convenes for the first time today. What's on the agenda? Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken joins us for more on that. Good morning, David. Good morning, Simeon. Yes, uh, here in Ottawa, lots of stuff to talk about. But I can tell you that parliamentarians and uh, journalists like us, you know, we're thinking about you guys in B.C. I mean, uh, we're watching the news and and that is still right now top of the mind, I think, for everybody in the country. Certainly sounds like it. And that's good to know because there's so much work that needs to be done here. But what Mm -hmm. else will be will they be talking about or what happens today, I guess, when Parliament reconvenes? Yeah, so it's uh, there's a, it's sort of a two-day opening, if you will. So today, Monday afternoon, we're going to see the election of the Speaker. And that's the first thing that has to happen after every parliament. Nothing else can happen until we elect a Speaker. And I'll talk about that in a bit. And then tomorrow, there is the uh, the throne speech. And that's when, of course, the, the government lays out its agenda for uh, the, the the fall. What what's going to be on that agenda? It, COVID for sure. Uh, I mean that that was the, that was a there was a signal during the election about that, and the prime minister said so afterwards that it, there's still a lot of work first and foremost for the government to support provinces by and large, uh, make sure that they have uh, vaccines rolling out. We saw the first shipment of pediatric vaccines arrived in the country yesterday, and so they'll be moving out uh, around the country uh, today and the rest of the week. So COVID COVID and pandemic that that certainly is job one for uh, probably for all governments, including the federal government. But then I think we're going to, I would look for two things that we're going to see some immediate action on. One is, listen, inflation and the rising cost of living, gas, groceries, everything is is, is more expensive. We've seen this rapid rise. Mm-hmm. Uh, what will the government do about that? We had a poll out over the weekend from our friends at Ipsos, and, and Ipsos found that, sure enough, the number one issue for voters is is affordability and cost of living. Pandemic is number two. So I, I'm sure the government knows that as well. And then I would also look at uh, housing, cost of housing and housing affordability. That was all the parties said something about that in the campaign. Uh, we have seen the average price of a home in Canada jump 32%, a new home, 32% in the last two years. And uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau appointed a minister of housing. That's the first that we have someone who's just the minister of housing. And that's Ahmed Hussein. He was uh, a minister in, in the last parliament. He was minister of families and social development. He's Toronto MP. And his job, he's just minister of housing. So that, I think, is a good tell that uh, in the throne speech in this fall, we're going to see the gov- federal government get to work again with provincial partners uh, on dealing with uh, a housing affordability crisis. Right. So those are provincial partners, though, but this is a minority parliament. So how will mm-hmm. the liberals get this done in parliament without a partner? That That's right. And, you know, we had this election, and as we all know, the the, the the current parliament looks an awful lot like the last parliament. There's 50 new MPs, I should point out. There was some change, but the big picture is the same. And so, just as in the last parliament, I think the liberals will first look to new Democrats, Jugmeet Singh and the NDP, uh, for support, sometimes to the Bloc Québécois, very rarely, I suppose, to the Conservatives. Now, the NDP and the Liberals were talking. There's no coalition. There's no formal deal or anything like that. Uh, and Jagmeet Singh has been pushing the Liberals uh, for, uh, to, for example, to extend some of the COVID-19 supports, uh, some of the enriched EI payments. Uh, there's some concerns that seniors uh, got some GIS payments cut off. Um, the NDP feels unfairly. 
And not everybody has been able to get back into the workforce. So the NDP would like to see some COVID supports extended. So there may be some horse trading there. So I'm going to look at that relationship to see how things sort of get done. The Conservatives, uh, they are still dealing with their own internal caucus divisions right now. Uh, there are internal caucus divisions over vaccine mandates, uh, internal divisions over Aaron O'Toole's leadership. So, you know, that is going to be sort of the political story of the fall. How can the Conservatives sort of get their things together? Okay, so that's one thing to watch for. But also, I know today they also have to elect a speaker, and it sounds like there's a lot of competition mm-hmm. for the job. There is a lot of competition, and normally this is, you know, this is a, a, an election that's really for political geeks like me. The incumbent, <laughs> Anthony Rhoda, wants the job back. He's a Liberal MP for Northern Ontario. But there are, are, are six challengers, three Conservatives, including Maple Ridge's Mark Dalton, the Conservative. He wants the job. Um, Elizabeth May would like to be the Speaker of the House of Commons. An, another New Democrat would and another Liberal would. So six challengers. But here's the thing that I think is of interest to the, to, I think, most Canadians is that this is an election that, by rule, must happen in person. MPs who want to vote for Speaker have have to be in the chamber, physically present, all 338. And as we know, in the last parliament, uh, there was some agreement to do the hybrid kind of parliament. Some MPs voting remotely, some in person. Now, I know that Liberals and New Democrats want to return to that hybrid model, and we'll probably see that because they do have a majority of votes if they want to set those rules but you can't set the rules until you get a speaker. And you can't change the rules that says the speaker's got to be elected in person. Now, that's important because conservatives in the bloc want more in-person sittings. In fact, they want everybody to be there in person. Now, uh, there's a rule that every MP must be vaccinated to be in the House. I mentioned the conservatives. There's some divisions about this. Will every conservative be there? Because if they are, they'd have to be fully vaccinated. We know one won't. And that's Richard LaHue. He's a Quebec conservative. He's got COVID. Just announced on the weekend that he's got COVID. Was he near any other conservative MPs? Will they have to self-isolate and therefore miss this vote on the speaker? And then we have the government house leader, the liberal, Mark Holland. He's so suspicious that the conservatives will be in the house not vaccinated. He is insisting they provide proof of vaccination. And remember, this is where everybody is assumed to be, quote, an honorable member telling the truth. Uh, Maybe not the Mark Holland doesn't think that some conservatives will. He wants proof of vaccination. So this speaker's election is turning out to have a whole lot of subtext and possibly some drama to it this afternoon to see what's going on with vaccinated MPs. We will be watching. David, thank you so much. Thanks, Simi. And stay dry. We will certainly do our best on that front. That is David Aiken, our Global National Chief Political Correspondent, talking about the 44th Parliament getting underway in Ottawa today. They will have to go through the process of electing a speaker, which, as David just pointed out, seems like it will be its own show in and of itself. Up next, we are checking in with our contributor, Raji Sohal, and we're talking about the metaverse, and she'll tell us why right after this. This is Mornings with Simi. We just got the update about what is happening in Abbotsford, but there are other communities that have been deeply impacted by the flood situation. Just take a look at what's happening in Merritt. More than 7,000 people out of their homes, and they still don't know if they can come back or not. What is happening in the Merritt area? What What is next for the evacuees there? Well, joining us now for an update is Greg Lois, the City of Merritt's Emergency Operations Centre Public Information Officer. Greg, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. What is the flood situation like in Merritt right now? 
The flood situation in Newark is improving, and that is fantastic. Um, I don't know if any of you will have had a chance to have seen the video on there put out last night, but there was some absolutely crucial information in there, and we're absolutely ecstatic about this. Later today, we will be announcing our plan to begin a phased rescission of the evacuation order and to start to bring some Meritonians home. Um, so uh, that, that, uh, that plan will be announced later today. I'm afraid I can't give you the de- details at this point, but we are looking at um, partially phasing down the evacuation order so some Meritonians will very soon be able to return to their community where we've been able to partially restore drinking water and sewage systems. Greg, that's amazing. That's incredible good news. Uh, Yeah, we are absolutely ecstatic about it. Okay, so will it depend on kind of where people live? Like how much have the floodwaters receded at this point? So uh, basically where where people are is absolutely the crucial determining factor. We'll be dividing the city into zones and whether or not um, the evacuation order will remain in place or will be downgraded to an alert um, and when that will happen will depend on where people's homes are in the city. Because essentially when the waters rose, uh, anyone who was in the flood inundation area, they of course were directly affected by the rising waters. But people across the entire city, even who were nowhere near the river, they had to leave the city when we lost the ability to deliver drinking water and to process sewage. Um, so we have been able to bring one of our four city wells back online. We've partially repressurized the drinking water system in one of our, uh, one of our areas. Um, it, the water that's coming out of there is still not fit to drink coming out of the faucets. We, uh, when we are allowing people to come back in, it will be on a boil water advisory. Uh, and so all of those details will be announced later. Uh, but the crucial factor is that some people whose homes were not directly affected by the flooding will be able to find out today when they can come home. Okay, so little baby steps here. Uh, But tell me about, Greg, the efforts that are being made. I know because the big problem in Merritt was the failure of the water treatment plant there. Mm -hmm. So what kind of work has been going on to fix that? There's been a huge amount of work, um, both inspecting, uh, fixing, repairing, and in some cases realizing that we simply cannot do those things with a lot of the pipe infrastructure. Um, in the flood zone, I know there was um, there's a sewer line running down one of our streets that was just com- uh, the street was completely stripped of its asphalt, and the line has basically been destroyed. Um, my uh, director of engineering was telling us last night that um, that sewer saying question that there is no repairs that can be done. It, it's a complete rebuild job, um, whereas some of the other ones we've been able to just uh, flush out the lines. I know there was one particular night where public works crews sucked more than two dump trucks worth of salt, debris and boulders out of our main sewer lines. Uh, this was like decades of buildup that happened literally overnight. So all of that work has had to be done to uh, pull those up, to inspect uh, the systems, to isolate parts of the, um, the pipes from each other so that we know that we can deliver water, even though it's in non-potable status, to some areas, and we can suck uh, septage through the sewage systems, again, from some areas, get it to the wastewater plant, and unfortunately, we still can't treat it, and this is why we're having to work closely with other government agencies, because we will be in violation of our operating permit. So, of course, we absolutely have to uh, bring the other government agencies with us. So, obviously, these are like the short-term, right, effects that you're trying Mm -hmm. to take here, the steps to get things up and running again. But long-term, Greg, for the infrastructure of merit, is this going to require a complete overhaul, a complete rethink? 
When it comes to the merits infrastructure, I mean, we're going to have to um, sit down when the, when the immediate emergency is over and work out some kind of a grand ma- uh, master plan of what needs to be done. Uh, the Boat Street Bridge across the Coldwater River collapsed into the river. Uh, I said there are some sewer mains which uh, cannot be repaired and need to be replaced. Um, we're going to need to look at completely updating our flood mapping and seeing whether or not everything is in appropriate places. The Coldwater River moved and we're um, uh, we're in the process of temporarily re-diverting it back into its original course at the lower reaches near where it joins the Nicola River. Um, but that's a very temporary solution where we'll be using a tiger dam, which uh, uses the river water to inflate like a big bladder and uh, divert it back into the old course. Right. But we, we have no idea what at this point what the permanent solution to that looks like. So there are huge infrastructure uh, challenges and projects that we're going to need to consider when we've managed to bring Meritonians back. Right, because that's the thing that I've been reading about the Merit situation is that, yeah, you essentially have a new river running through town. And the question is, do you leave it where it is? Absolutely. And there are a lot of factors which come into this, of course. Um, so just river engineering is an incredibly difficult challenge. So although we, uh, we can temporarily do things, but the long-term solution, it would be extremely uh, difficult, expensive. It's not that it could, couldn't necessarily be done. But you need to ask, um, what should you do? What are the issues around private property of the people who were inundated? What happens about the, uh, the salmon spawning habitats? We need to make sure that we consult with the local First Nations who have inhabited this land for thousands of years and to whom the river is sacred. Um, I was privileged yesterday to um, be present for a ceremony by the Coldwater Indian Band um, as they made prayers to the river at the location that it um, jumped its banks and then carved a new path d- uh, down what used to be Pine Street in Colorado. Wow. So there's a lot of work here that still needs to be done, Greg. Okay, but let's focus on the good news here once again for Merritt residents. Keep listening because it sounds like there will be more information coming later today. There will be more information later today on the phased rescission of the evacuation order and turning that into an evacuation alert in some areas of the city. Well, that is good news and we will take it. Uh, Thank you so much for your time, Greg. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That is Greg Lois, the City of Merritt's Emergency Operations Center's Public Information Officer. Boy, we we talked so much about Abbotsford the last couple of days. I mean, you know, think about what's going on in Merritt. You've got more than almost 8,000 people out of their homes. It's been a week now, right? Monday was the big day where that happened last week. There is, I don't know if you've seen the pictures, but there is essentially a new river going through the town of Merritt, right through the city center there. And they still haven't figured out, well, they they of course, they haven't still because it only happened a week ago, but they have to figure out what to do about that. Do you divert it back? Do you leave it where it is? And if that's the case, what do you do with all the property. So good news for Merritt residents, though, they will be beginning a phased return to people's homes or at least rescinding the evacuation order uh, in parts of Merritt. So keep listening right here. We will have more on that today. So that's Merritt. The other community deeply impacted by the flooding situation, of course, is in Princeton. And there, the mayor is Spencer Coyne. And he talked to Global News about what has been lost in Princeton, but also said that after, you know, seeing everything and assessing the damage, he feels that there is some hope. I mean, some people lost everything. Uh, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I mean, it's there's 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 people out there devastated right now. Our, our hearts are with them. Our sewer lift station, we thought we may have lost it and it has been running this whole time and it's continuing to run and it's just it's amazing. 
It is amazing the work that's being done in Princeton, but you see it. I'm just watching you know the news over the weekend and seeing the people just cleaning out their homes. They have to start that process now, right? With that much flood water that they had. And it's messy and it is devastating. And for the people who have lost everything, they've all they're trying to essentially recount or recall what it is that they lost in their homes. The magnitude of the situation really just sunk in. And I was just shocked at it. Um, I have all my daughter's art up on the wall and everything, and it was, it was tear-jerking. It's kind of hard to talk about. So when we open the basement door, everything's just floating. So that's Christmas, sentimental, photos. Oh, man, that is devastating. That is home after home in Princeton. So even though for now the floods are receding, this is the devastating now impact the recovery part that comes next. There will be updates on that as well, on the recovery of what that looks like, and we'll have that for you throughout the day today. This is Mornings with Simi. There's a lot of work to be done to help BC get back on its feet again, to clean up after these storms, and to help people get their, get their lives moving again. And potentially brace for more flooding, too, with heavy rain in the forecast for the North Coast. So everyone really has disaster preparedness on their mind, I think, these days. And our show contributor, Raji Sohal, joins us now for more on that. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, these stories, first of all, of people hoarding, panic buying, some people think that that is preparedness. Like, oh, okay, uh, I just got to make sure I have enough milk in my fridge to get through two weeks in an area that has no disaster. Um, Because we're seeing that hoarding happen in so many places where there wasn't flooding. Well, that's not, that's not preparedness. Uh, That's not disaster preparedness whatsoever. And meeting supply issues is not enough. I talked to Robin Cox. She's a professor of disaster management at Royal Roads University. We talked about disaster preparedness. She said we we kind of have the information that we need. Environment Canada is able to collect the data that could lead to predicting extreme weather events to an extent. But she said that data is a part of the puzzle. It's not everything. We definitely have a lot of data and that increases every year. We get more and more accurate. Uh, But that's not really uh, directly impacting preparedness. Preparedness requires an investment of time and resources and really sort of thinking ahead proactively. And I would say generally, we're not that good at that as a society. You know, I think COVID has demonstrated that, but most disasters demonstrate that. We know that they're coming and we know that with climate change, these kinds of extreme weather events will increase in frequency. And uh, we need to invest now in order to prepare and adapt to them. And that's that's a hard sell politically sometimes in terms of the uh, political life cycle and putting money in where the benefits of that money may not happen until uh, much later. But even at the individual household level, you know, trying to manage day-to-day expenses uh, in the context of COVID, of course, that's been even harder. And then being asked to or prompted to invest now in preparing for events that may or may not happen is is a difficult sell and, and we're not that good at it. Okay, and we're not very good at it, right? Because I think, Roger, you can see that just by the behavior that some people have gone through in the last week where it's like all of a sudden we started thinking about it. Yeah, Simi, I I don't know enough about, you know, I haven't studied psychology enough to know why people rush out and hoard when there isn't a reason to. I mean, I saw pictures of people in 
Vancouver proper, like right in the heart of Vancouver, downtown Vancouver, showing, uh, you know, posting pictures of some empty shelves. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? It's like people just panic and they think, um, okay, well, my personal responsibility should be to uh, make sure that my family is fed in a city that's unaffected. Well, when Robin Cox talks about personal personal responsibility, what she means is get your family, get your household prepared, have an emergency kit prepared. Now, in my own household, I sheepishly admit we don't have a good emergency what? kit ready to go. Not a good one. We have a, like an okay one. But, um, you know, a little while ago, I presented a story on, on this show about how there's this app that's just come out that UBC is piloting right now um, in which they look at uh, how to prepare for a disaster. And the checklist is so exhaustive. I would never have thought of these things on my own. Things like, hey, do you wear do you wear contact lenses? Do you have like a backup contact lens case always ready to go with the solution? And do the you, medication, do you, right? Do you need medication? Exactly. Have extras. How are you going to get that? Yeah. And so these kinds of things, like these exhaustive plans, we all need to have them for people who, for farmers who have livestock, like they need to have a plan in place before something happens where they assess like, okay, what would, what would the game plan be? And what would the order of events be if we have to get our animals out? What does that look like? And Robin Cox also mentioned in that clip, just infrastructure. And, you know, this, this point about the alerts, like should the provincial government have sent out an emergency alert. When I see the hoarding, I, you know, I think, yes, we do need to send out an emergency alert. And then I see the hoarding and I'm like, oh, wait a second. If they had sent out an emergency alert, would everyone have just panicked, filled our highways, filled our roadways in places where it was dangerous to do so? uh, Because people would be trying to evacuate areas that maybe necessarily didn't even need evacuating, right? Yeah. Because these emergency alerts, Simi, they can get them right down to the neighborhood, but what if you alert a neighborhood? Because this stuff isn't totally predictable, right? These events. That um, is what Henry Braun said last week too, though. Is that yeah. why? Because the city of Abbotsford did not put out an overall emergency alert for the entire you know, community of Abbotsford because that's what he said. He didn't want to alarm everybody and they preferred to target the people who lived in that Sumas Prairie area. But, you know, they can do that. They can target a neighborhood. And it just seems to me that they, if you can send everybody a message on their cell phone and say you need to get out now in that neighborhood we should do that i totally hear that and i think it would be most effective to send out those alerts to people who are prepared one one tiny silver lining of what has happened is that now we are all so well there there are a few silver linings including one that people have become such helpers and aware of how we can really show up for our community Um, Another is that now that this is on our radar, we can be prepared for the next time because these weather events are going to happen. And so we can put in that work now in our households, in our communities and put pressure on governments. And I do want to make the point that I think any political party that would have been in power um, of our various options uh, would have faced this. Oh, it would have been a struggle. Yeah. Regardless, it would have been a struggle. Exactly. So we all need to take a little bit of responsibility, including personally, to go, okay, how how could I prepare my family, my community? What could I do uh, in the event that something like this would happen? And we all need to be a part of this debate about the alerts. Like, why why did our government choose not to issue one? Let's address that. Figure it, it out. Was it because they didn't want us to panic? I think so. On the other hand, Simi, I got to say that people who are armed with information 
can make good decisions. Um, and if we have the information, we can, we can make the choice to, okay, evacuate um, on time. We know that in, in cases like landslides, for example, uh, timing is everything and hours can make a huge difference. Um, I was talking to a friend uh, the other day who got on the Coquihalla just before the split Ooh, and yikes. before things were closed down. And they were taking their kid, who's part of a sports team, uh, to to a trip out there. And it made me think, like, we had enough. We, we were aware from Environment Canada that maybe that trip shouldn't have happened in the first place. So you're saying that, that, we need to make better decisions personally. Yeah, and like maybe they, that parent should have said, hey, I'm not going to go out on that trek. Or maybe that sports team goes, you know what? The the matches are off. They're going to yeah. be off because there is this extreme weather warning. Let's heed it. Let's heed the advice and uh, take it seriously. Let's us take responsibility rather than waiting for the government to say, okay, state of emergency, you know, yeah. everybody locked down, that kind of thing. Exactly. All right, Raji, thank you. Thanks so much. This is Mornings with Simi. If you're looking for a job, what's the first thing you do? Well, you probably polish up your resume. It has long been considered the calling card to getting your foot in the door and being recognized, you know, to let people know you're experienced and ready for this job. But a resume is becoming a thing of the past. Well, if you're hoping for a job at one huge Canadian bank, that may be the case. Scotiabank has actually removed the requirement for a resume as part of its campus hiring program. So what are they doing instead? Ah, that is where our next guest comes in. Joining us now is Caitlin McGregor, the CEO of a company called Plum. Caitlin, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. What is Plum? So we're a software platform that has taken best practices from industrial organizational psychology and created a 25-minute assessment that evaluates people's innate talents, what makes them exceptional, things like their ability to innovate, communicate, work well on teams, and allows employers to find people with the behaviors that they need in order to thrive in their different roles. So that kind of makes a resume just useless. Well, unfortunately, where you went to school and previously worked, it's really a rear view mirror perspective on what you've done in the past. And it's embedded with a lot of systemic barriers and biases that dictate access to education, internships, even how long it took you to get a promotion. And that data does not predict future performance. Tells you if you're eligible, but won't tell you if you'll be the top performer. And so the data just isn't that accurate at being able to tell you who will be most successful. So you're saying you data is. Right. So you're saying you can design a questionnaire that will help a company figure out which employees would be better suited for working for them. Absolutely. Being able to understand which ones, you know, will really be driven and thrive in a role versus which behaviors would make them be burnt out and just not really enjoying or being successful in the job long term. So you said something about industrial organizational psychology. Is there is such a thing? What is that? Yeah, it's a real science. Um, it has decades. Have, there are 6,000 PhDs in North America. And it's all about looking at personality at work. What is it that long term says that somebody will be successful in a role that they may have never have even had the opportunity or background to do, but if you were to put them in that situation, would they be able to adapt and succeed in it? So looking at those, you know, often called soft skills or transferable skills, 
there's a way to actually quantify them and measure them and understand if somebody will be successful versus their peer, given the, the circumstances. So what, what are the downsides of a resume then, Caitlin? What doesn't work about that? Yeah, I mean, five years ago, everybody was trying to hire a software developer that had Ruby on Rails skills, and it was a hot market. And now nobody needs Ruby on Rails unless you're keeping an old software program on life support. And so just, you know, a lot of the, the information that's in a resume is constantly outdated, and it's very specific to the organization that they were in at that time. So if you worked at a large organization doing enterprise sales, that does not mean that you're going to be able to handle um, selling to a medium-sized business in a startup. That all the circumstances around somebody's job really change one job to the next. And so that past performance, just statistically over and over again, does not show if the person will perform long-term. Okay, but then, Caitlin, what kind of questions can you ask on this questionnaire that would show you that? Yeah, so we look at things like problem solving. So not what you've learned in the past, but how well you handle a brand new situation, uh, an abstract problem. How well do you come to the conclusion and, and come to the right answer? We also look at uh, personality based on kind of the, the most up-to-date gold standard of personality models, but in a way that you can't game or fake. So, you know, do you generally respect authority or make friends easily or always finish what you start? Which ones of these are more like you? Which ones are least like you? And it's always asking to prioritize your time. And then social intelligence, basically a work situation. What's the best way of responding so that you get the best performance out of your colleagues and peers? Okay, this is so interesting because I guess the downside of also having a resume is that, you know, it did it did imply some biases sometime, didn't it, right? Like, oh, you went to that school. Oh, you didn't go to that school. And, and all of that plays a part in who you send on to the next level. Yeah, absolutely. So what Scotiabank was able to do by removing resumes and, and using Plum's assessment instead is that they were able to cast a wire net. They used to always hire from the same small handful of universities, the same finance and business backgrounds, and now they're hiring from over 33 different colleges and universities. 40% of their new hires have STEAM backgrounds, science, technology, arts, and math. And from that, they're screening in people they never would have saw before, and they're not, you know, those those pattern matching that they used before isn't getting in the way. We often tend to hire things that are from hire people that are familiar. We look for things that we recognize. Oh, I finished school in four years. This person finished school in four years. That person finished in five years. Oh, is that because they're not as driven? We don't understand right. if maybe they had part-time jobs and other things looking after a family member, other areas that could have slowed down their completion of university. Okay. I am fascinated by this because it must take some of those biases out of the hiring process. And does it make a workforce more equal? Absolutely. So now Scotiabank is hiring 80, sorry, 60% of their hires now are minorities. Uh, they now have increased the number of people of color from 4 to 10%. They're seeing real movement. 50% of their hires are women. They're seeing real change in their diversity metrics because they're screening in. They're, they're widening the applicant pool right. and they're using science instead of bias to decide who to hire. Okay. And are people staying longer though? Because I know that's the key right now for a lot of companies is you want to hire employees that hang around. Yeah. Their retention rate has almost doubled as a result. So why don't more companies do this, Caitlin? Is it just that it's new technology? I think that, you know, it's scary to 
go away from, well, my gut knows best and, you know, I'm going to hire something, somebody that looks familiar to me. I think it's just change management. I think it's people realizing that there's a better way and embracing it. There's this, you know, holding on to the past because this is new. And I mean, there's a certain amount of education. We all talk about soft skills. We all talk about this being the future, hiring people for what makes them uniquely human. And we know people want to be seen for their potential, but to take the leap and actually go with it, it, it takes a little bit of, of courage uh, to embrace the change. Okay. And so what are the next steps here? Like, where do you see this going? So we actually have deployed this internally in companies. So they're now using this for employee development, for, you know, internal uh, upskilling and succession planning, identifying future leaders. And so using this data, not just for hiring, but for the full life cycle, for all employees throughout their career, maximizing somebody's potential at every step of their career is, is where we've seen our customers take this. Okay. So do you foresee a time when the resume is just like a thing of the past? I think that people will always want to know a little bit, but just like reference checks, they come at the very end after you decided who to go with um, and not the, the screener at the very beginning. So I think there'll be a role, but much later in the process. Right. So right now it seems to work for bigger companies, though. Can you scale this down to make it work for small ones? Yeah, we started with small companies. We just realized that it was the, the larger companies that really it's, it's a data problem. It's using better you know, unbiased scientific data, and they have the largest amount of data because they have the most employees and most candidates. But this can work for anybody. And people can right. go to our website and take their own plot assessment for free. Wait a minute, what? I can actually go and see what kind of an employee I am by taking this assessment? Absolutely. You can see what your top talents are, and you can put those online to promote yourself and really advocate for what makes you exceptional. Okay, so then given all the work that you've done with all these companies, then Caitlin, I have to ask, what are the top qualities that it turns out that companies are looking for that don't show up on a resume? Yeah, I mean, it changes based on each unique role. Uh, Innovation is something that companies say that they want, but you don't necessarily want to hire an innovative accountant. So in that case, you maybe want somebody who is really great at execution and really great at managing others and great at teamwork. And so we, we have 10 talents that focus on, you know, each role is a combination of those. And what gets prioritized is very unique to the role and to the company. And it only takes eight minutes to really understand what are those behavioral needs for, for each role at the company. I am so fascinated by this. Caitlin, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye. That's Caitlin McGregor, who's the CEO of a company called Plum. And they're essentially a job or talent assessment platform, meaning gone are the days when you dropped off your resume and then you're like, why didn't I hear anything back from that company? Well, it's because they couldn't really tell anything about you or maybe there was some kind of bias and they thought, oh, I don't like that school that this person went to. Whatever. All those kind of little human psychological things that count you out before you have a chance to even show you might be good at this. So now they give you a questionnaire and they can find out, oh, this person has the qualities. I think this is just amazing. And I can see a lot of different companies actually jumping on board with this for sure.